Just a quick commercial that uh, for anybody who was at the 8.30, the orchestra that was up in the balcony, they're coming to do a concert next Friday, not this Friday, next Friday, December 16th, 7.30. You can come for the preschool show, and then you can stay for a concert. Um, and just want to set this down a second. I won't spill this. These are all at this little card is all at the reception desk. Take one when you leave. It has information. Tickets are $10. Children 16 or under are free with paying adults, and there's a website. You can buy them, or you can get them at the door. So next Friday, 7.30, here, December 16th. Yeah, next Friday. So not this Friday that's coming up, because this is the first day of the week, right? Gospel, right? So it's December 16th. December 16th. This weekend's Christmas sharing, next weekend, December 16th. Okay. Uh, All right, here we go. Let's pray. Two Sundays into Advent. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Luke 21. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who through your own Son has revealed to us that heaven and earth shall pass away, we beg you now keep us steadfast in your word, graciously preserve us from all sin, and let our hearts not be overcharged with the cares of this life, but always spend our time in watchfulness and prayer, awaiting the return of your Son, and joyfully cherishing the expectation of eternal salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, good to see you all. Uh, There's a lot cooking. Uh, If you put some money in the basket, we're going to do a new old thing. So we've been supporting Spain. That continues to evolve. Uh, Part of the evolution of that is there's going to be a new seminary uh, built for Latin America, South America, and for the Spanish speakers in the Dominican Republic. So, um, hey, if anybody has $25,000, they'll name a room after you. And if you have $110,000, I can get you a spot on the beach for free, okay? So uh, I talk with Ted Cray, who's the regional director, and they have all these big plans. And you know, they always look at guys like me, and they say, like, Can't, isn't there, could you come up with $100,000? And I'm always like, if I could come up with $100,000, I would start a seminary in the Dominican Republic. <laughs> so, but uh, if, you, uh, if anybody, you know, if anybody has a, wants to take an interest in something, we'll, we'll put some money together before the end of the year somehow. So if you put money in there, um, I'm going to try to get him $5,000 before the end of the year and make it all work. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go on from there. Um, Christmas sharing, you know, sign up on the list, come and help, check the calendar, bring stuff. Do what Carol says, like that, right? And then your life will be wonderful. From all I hear, it's uh, going pretty well in terms of what you brought. But still, you know, still try to help all that. The music was fabulous this morning. Um, They played for free. I mean, that's Joe Brockman's group that he plays with all the time. He's quite a cellist. And uh, so, you know, if you come support him, they'd love to, as their director said, they'd love to have a full full sanctuary uh, a week from Friday. All right, so that's they would. Um, they'd love to have you come. So you know, let's bring some friends. It'll be a very, very nice thing. Okay, what else? Anything else we've forgotten? On Wednesdays, uh, do come. I think that had to be the most people we've ever had last Wednesday. There was still plenty of food. What kind of food is there this Wednesday? What are we getting? Soup and salad, Soup and salad this week. Who's doing that? Sandwiches. Sandwiches. You guys don't really know what you're having on Wednesday, do you? <laughs> Right? Here's Christmas sharing. I, this is on Wednesday before the service. What are we seriously? What? We're having sandwiches? Are we having soup too? So we're having sandwiches and soup. So there were, there were more than 200 people last week for dinner. So come for dinner. Who's, who's running dinner, by the way? 
She's not here, though? Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a thing. So we'll just have to make sure that they, you know, you all come and there'll be enough soup. We'll figure something out. It'll be great. Come. Bring your friends. It's great. Um, although there is a new ambient noise level in Taze, did you notice? It was like, we can no longer promise prayer in silence. We can promise prayer in darkness. But here's the thing. That has to, that's a very happy sound. When you, when you hear that, you're kind of going, this is a complete change, but it's very interesting. The other thing, though, is, Pastor Chats, the kids know all those songs, right? So you heard them sing, right? Because the, Pastor Nelson's been teaching them those songs, and whoever else has been doing the music, who's been doing the music? Peter, I think, has been doing the music. And so that's fabulous, because the kids come, and then suddenly it's like, oh, this is where I chime in, right? So it's, it's, it's nice. Okay, um, what else? Anybody else got anything? All right, good. Uh, oh, just for Christmas, just remember to make sure that you look on the Christmas schedule. We're going to presume that you think Christmas is a bigger deal than just any old Sunday. So there'll be the normal services on Saturday, Christmas Eve, three times. But on Sunday, Christmas Day, just one time. Okay? Just kind of check your schedule. Because we're going to presume that you're going to think like it's Christmas, even though Christmas is on a Sunday. Good? There's three sir. Isn't there three? Two services. Some number of services. <laughs> There's more than one service on Christmas Eve. You're right. We killed the latest service. So it's just you and me always at that last service and the choir. Now we're looking at each other going, why are we having a late service? Because two services on Christmas Eve, one on Christmas Day or something like that. Look at the schedule. Look at the schedule. Okay? And then just one last thing. I'll be here next week, but the following week I won't be here. We'll, I'm, I'm stopping a week early because um, I've got to be away that weekend. But, uh, so we'll go next week, though, and then uh, we'll have a little bit of a pause for Christmas. Okay, good. All good? So here's what I want to think about. So you've noticed already that this, uh, how we're doing the creed is probably not the way it just comes out of the catechism or the confessions, and maybe not even we're not even arguing about the things that you thought we might be arguing about, like evolution or um, proofs for the existence of God and all that kind of stuff. Partly because uh, you've been there and done that, and partly because I'm very, very interested in the existential use of the creed. That is, your experience of the creed as this tender moment between you and God. And in some ways, you can hear that when you're, when you're in church in the morning and kind of the way the creed proceeds with a pace, but also with kind of a joy that this is how it is between God and me. The creed is this description of your relationship with God. What I want to talk about this morning is, you know, what this notion of maker of heaven and earth actually looks like. And so, um, not for proof that there's a maker necessarily, and not for an argument about whether we should go to the Evolution Museum or not, um, although those things have large consequences. Uh, for example, the loss of God as our maker does, of course, um, leave us then into some sort of we all have to decide for ourselves, which you've seen as the diminution of life. And so on both ends of life, both in abortion, for example, and also in how we treat older people, how willing we are to, um, let, them, to let them die and sort of disguise that, which is a great change over the course of the time that I've been pastor. Even with my own mother, I observed this. You know, I was told, and I'd been there a hundred times before, sort of told one thing and then immediately something else happened as soon as we sort of said, yes, do that. It was so, uh, it was interesting to watch it happen in real time and happened to me. That was very strange. So, you know, of course, if you, if you just kind of are up from the slime, um, you know, how you treat people before and after, and, it, and it, it boils down even into our politics, right, about how you treat your enemies uh, when you're a winner, you know, 
read about Syria. You know, what happens? Or think about America, right? How do you treat your enemies when you're a winner? You know, there are, history is rife with places where, you know, you round up your enemies and, and um, you degrade them and you kill them, right? This is no, and so it's very hard to do that if you think that you have a creator who, to whom you are responsible for life, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, right? But of course, if there's nobody saying thou shalt not murder, if that's just something people made up to make the life go along a little bit easier, make, make uh, relationships within a tribe work out, well, um, if things are malleable, then they're malleable. So there are things, or you know, you have the very basic things. I mean, I mean partly about one of the things about evolution that always amazes me, when, even when I talk to scientists, is, is evolution is basically a resurrection story. It's a story of a resurrection told a different way, which is there wasn't any life, and then suddenly there was life, right? That's a resurrection story. There wasn't any life, and then suddenly, out of no life, something happens and life springs up. Yeah, that's Easter. Just told about mud and slime and microbes and carbon and energy, right? So this always, it's always an interesting thing about the presuppositions that you have about things. And partly, if you understand how the game is played, then you don't have to be quite so nervous about um, people who do this. At the end of the day, people pay their money and they take their choice. You heard it today in uh, the Gospel, and you should read it back into the Old Testament reading. So in Isaiah, he says, this is the kind of life that we will have. It is frankly the life that everybody aspires to, where the... Uh, it's just so interesting when you read that today. The lion doesn't eat the ox, he eats the straw. He lies down with the ox and he doesn't eat the ox, he eats the straw. Right? I mean, that's a metaphor for everything that we aspire to. But John the Baptist comes and says, look, Jesus has standards. There's things that are holy and not holy. And if you think you can make yourself holy all by yourself, That'll never work. And I think 4,000 years of the human experiment of recorded history it, you know, sort of shows that we aren't very good at this, right? Not very good in getting worse. And yet in our own pocket of places, we can try to do better. John the Baptizer, and Pastor was very good about it, Pastor Nelson today in his sermon. You know, three parts to this, to repent, to be forgiven, and then to do good works. John unabashedly says that. What do we do if we're a soldier? Be fair. Don't push people around. Don't rob them. Don't bully them. Tax collector, what do you do? You collect the taxes and not more, right? You're fair to people. You do what you've been given to do. You're honest, right? This is just, you know, this is just kind of basic stuff. So it's not that I'm diminishing those things. It's that uh, you've heard that story before and nobody's going to budge. You know, it's a little like we've talked about, you know, different kinds of worship. But, you know, the, it's hardened and nobody's going to budge, at least not for a little while. Although, what has to happen is a little bit like the abortion issue, which people argue about it for. And then suddenly people start to flip. And you get a little more support and people are a little more empathetic and a little more questioning, a little more loving. But sometimes it takes decades for that thing to happen. So your job is just to continue to be faithful. Okay, that all said... What I want to think about for you, or I want you to think about today, is just a very basic question, which is how God is at work in the world. Okay? And this is going to answer a lot of other questions. If you get this straight, then other things are going to be answered. So really, I had twice as much as I wanted to do today, and I haven't figured out whether I'm going to come back to it next week or not, because I really would like to do something about angels before we get to Christmas, but I don't know if I'm going to make it. Because um, I think it would be interesting for you to hear the Christmas story 
invis visible and invisible, you know, kind of the touch point is being angels. So I don't, I don't quite know if we'll get there. So I didn't do as much. But here's the thing that lie behind this. When you say a prayer and you get an answer, how, what exactly happened there, right? Or when there's a miracle in the scriptures, what's really going on there, right? What, is it, what does it mean for there? Or when something really, really evil happens in the world, how did that happen in the typical where is God, right? So I want to sort of engage that of maker, and have, maker of heaven and earth when we say that every week. What exactly does that mean? And what I'd like you to think about and try to get crisp by the end of the hour today, what I'd like for you to have in your mind is a crisp idea of how your world and God's worlds work, right? Because I think we have this image of, um, well, I should just ask you, I mean, um, you know, how, does, how do you think that God's world works with your world? What do you think God does? I mean, there's a couple of, couple of possibilities. One is that, you know, sort of the, the pantheistic notion that God is everything, or everything is divine, pantheism and panentheism. Big, big words for the notion that God is just in everything. So, you know, when I do this, you know, I'm touching God on the head, right? Or when your friends say, I'm hitting a golf ball and that's divine, God's not in the golf ball. I'm sure he's in the Eucharist. He's not in your Titleist. Not even if you play the Pro V1s. Because I've seen you play, right? Always right. Okay? So, I mean, you know. So one way is, you know, pantheism or panentheism, that God is in everything. So God is just synonymous with all the things. He's in his creation and he's everywhere. That's sort of one extreme. And that's when you get people worshiping trees or, you know, meditating in, in front of rocks and, you know, feeling the aura and all that. That's, that's one way to think about how, how God intersects with his u- universe. God is the universe, right? So God is the universe. He's in the beams up there, and he's in the clock, and of course he's in you too, and there's a little bit of divine in everything, and so you treat a cow like you treat a human being because God's in both of them, and it all just works out, right? So that's kind of one end of the spectrum, that they're the same, if you will. That, the, that, the, that the, everything that's made that you see here is kind of an expression of, um, uh, of God in a very real, real sense that God is in everything. That's one end of a spectrum. Okay? Kind of at the other end of the spectrum is, is much what, for example, um, Americans were given to about the time that America was founded, which is this notion of um, deism or Gnosticism, it reappears in different ways, that God sort of made the universe and then turned his back on it, right? It's like he took a ball and spun it in the air and um, then sort of just walked away from it. And so the consequences are the consequences and you're on your own. And so God is very, very, instead of God being in everything, right? Instead of God being in everything, God is absent, if you will, and we are very much on our own. Of course, there was a God who started it, but God is not active. He doesn't intervene. He's not present. It is up to you. And you see how easily this goes into the last three or 400 years of world history, in the West at least, that our problems are our problems, and God isn't going to come around and solve them, and so we are responsible on our own to make things happen. Um, you know, and this, you know, one a form of this then is, is Gnosticism, where on the one side, pantheism and panentheism says everything matters, all material matters, because God is in everything. He's in this and he's in that, and he's in this too, right? And he's in you, but he's in everything kind of equally in the same way. The other way is to say he's not in anything, right? 
And so the kind of the far reach of that is you say, and in fact, material things are bad. This isn't any good. You remember Plato? Plato said, you know, this is a chair, but up in heaven there's the idea of a chair. Do you remember your very first philosophy class, right? So the beautiful thing are, all the beautiful things are non-material. All the true things don't have any substance. This is why the incarnation is a complete joke, because God would never save us through material stuff. God is spirit. God is ideas. God is thinking. And the only wonderful thing. So you can get it in Plato and the Neoplatonists. Or you can get it in the American founding fathers, many of whom were deists, who said, God, of course, created the world, but he gave it a spin, and then he stepped back, and we are on our own. Do you sort of see the two, the two ranges? You okay with that? Questions about any of that? Right? You okay? You remember all this? All right, good. Now, there is uh, another way, which what I suggest is the biblical way, which would be, you know, just for, you know, just, you know, just for, well, for the sake of Christmas, would be what it means to say, Emmanuel, God is with us, right? God is with us. So think about what we already know, that God is a person. He's a person like you. He's a person separate from you, and he's in a relationship with you. But God is with you. That means God is, of course, here, right? His spirit is everywhere, but separate, but intersecting, if you will. And he's particularly present in special ways in the Eucharist, in baptism, in his spoken words. Why? Because that's where he decided to put himself. So, of course, it is true that God is everywhere. When I put my hand through I put my hand in some sense through God, only because God is present. But that's not very helpful. That doesn't save me. But when I go to the Eucharist and I get the touch of the Eucharist, it's God who's with me and he touches me. When you bring your child and have your child baptized, it's God who baptizes that child and touches that child. You know, so, so it's you and um, your spouse and your other kids and the pastor and your godparents and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all standing there around the font. That's what's going on there. So God isn't absent, like the deist said, or like the Gnostic said, this Da Vinci Code stuff. God is absent, right? And so we have secrets, and we learn spiritual things, blah, blah, blah. God isn't absent. God isn't present and everything synonymous. God's a person the way you're a person. And God is with you all the time. And frankly, you know, God's angels are with you all the time. This should encourage you greatly in a difficult world, right? That God is always with you. And then you see, when you pray and ask for things, it's as easy as turning, you know, to young Shite here and say, lend me five bucks. You say, easy that bit? Except to Shite, I would say, lend me a hundred bucks. I'd probably go to Wayne because he's loaded. The kids know this, Right? If I said to Wayne, lend me a hundred bucks, you know, I'm sure, if, I mean, Wayne had just come out, he's, he's coming out with one bill, right? Because that's how Wayne rolls. <laughs> Think about it. Oh, you put it in the basket already. Never mind. Okay, so, all right. So, uh, but you know, it's that easy, you know, saying say in your prayers is as easy as talking to Wayne, asking for a hundred bucks. We'll let the shites decide later whether that's true. All right, so here we go. All right, so kind of go to your outline, right? 
And all of this toward then, what might lure somebody like you or console somebody like you or draw somebody in or give you something to talk about at Christmas if anybody really wants to talk about this. You saw that the new atheist billboards are up this morning, stay home for Christmas. You know, this is, we're all used to this now. The National Geographic always comes out for non-resurrection and alternate Jesus at Easter and the atheists always come out at Christmas with their stay home and make yourself merrier for Christmas. You know, whatever, it's kind of boring. You're like, go work in a soup kitchen, right? Do some, do some good, um, but... Whatever, uh, you know. You it, on the opposite side of that, you want to say, you know, what might um, what might be interesting to people, or lure people, or strengthen you, or keep you close. That's found in these words, um, Maker of heaven and earth. So, number two, I at least want to start with this. And just this, you know this, but I just remind you of this: that the first words of Genesis and the first words of John's Gospel are the same. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John, when he writes this, wants to make very clear to you that he's talking about the same God that Moses was talking about in Genesis. And it's the same story. It's a new chapter, but it is the consummation of what's going on. And then, of course, you know, I gave you a bit from N.T. Wright, who I'll kind of stick close with this morning. He sort of says, you know, Christians just tell this story as if it's true. You have to be ashamed of that, to just, especially not in this world where people can say anything is true. I mean, you might as well be as crazy as the next people, right? This is a story. This is our story, and we tell it because we think it's true. And the reason you have to get angry about that is because at the end of the day, the Lord's going to sort it all out. I mean, I dare you. I dare you to say your prayers and tithe and give alms and come to church every week and listen to that glorious music and be merciful to people and be loving when you meet them and to remember Christ in your prayers. I dare you to do I, I will guarantee you. This is the way Strutzel, you know says to you, hey, bring me all your money and I'll invest it in a way and the overflow I'll send over to Yonker and between the two of us, it'll all work out if you just stay disciplined. Isn't that what you two knuckleheads say every week? Isn't that what you want to say? Okay, let's pause now and you can all sign up with the two of them, right? Okay, Merry Christmas to you guys, uh, right? But if you go to either one of those guys standing back there, what are they going to say to you? They're going to say, hey, I know exactly what to do if you just keep the discipline. Is that not what you say, right? That's what you'll say. Which is what I'm saying to you, too. I, you know, but I'll say it from Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what you need. I just dare you to keep the discipline and find out how wonderful your life will actually be. We tell this story as if it's true. You can argue about it not being true all you want. And I can go hard at that. And I know people who can go harder at that than I can. But that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is what your life's going to be like when you walk out into the snow today. That's what I'm interested in, okay? So how do you fit this together? I'm turning the page. Five. For a moment, let's think about God without putting strictures on him. So just without any objections. And this is normally when you, sometimes when you talk to yourself, you know, when you talk to yourself, sometimes when you talk to other people, immediately they have a lot of rules by which God has to play. Right? Well, calm down a second, okay? A great many arguments about God, God's existence, God's nature, God's actions in the world, run the risk of being like pointing a flashlight toward the sky to see if the sun is shining. So um, let me translate this. Run the risk of a lesser making decisions about a greater, a flashlight deciding about the sun, a creature deciding about a creator. See, this is what always happens. As soon as the, as soon as the, the notion of God comes up, especially God as maker right, of heaven and earth, already people have a lot of rules. We did this early, right? Um, we've done this a couple of different ways. But well, here, So here's what happens. As soon as you bring the topic up, people will say... Um, okay, then, we can talk about God, and here's the rules, and God has to fit inside my box. 
to which we say, hmm, what happens if he's there, right? So just without, just, just kind of open-mindedly saying, um, without any rules, without thinking that you run the conversation, another way would be to say to, with the notion that perhaps you don't know everything, and that if God is more than you, then he might actually reveal himself more than you can engage, maybe even more than you can understand, maybe even a mysterious way, you know? It's all too easy to make the mistake of speaking and thinking as though God might be a being, an entity within our world, right? Within our world, accessible to our interested study in the same sort of way that we might study music or mathematics, things that we create, observe, dominate, or control. Open to our investigation by the same sort of techniques we use for objects and entities within our world. If you're of my age, you can remember this. When Yuri Gagarin, the first Soviet cosmonaut, landed after orbiting the Earth a few times, he declared that he had disproved the existence of God. He'd been up there, he said, and had seen no sign of him. Do you remember that? Of your certain age, you remember that. I'm probably about the young, you know. Sputnik was launched on my birthday, you know, the first orbiting thing. This is true. Let's see, three things happened that day. I was born, Sputnik was launched, and Norman Nagel went up to Cambridge, all on the 4th of October, 1957. It's true. The weird things you find out about people. So um, some Christians pointed out that Gagarin had seen plenty of signs of God if only the cosmonaut had known how to interpret them, right? So the question then, is there a cogent way to talk about God, especially about God and us? Because really, you know, Luther's thing about, hey, a God that, that you can't find is no different than no God at all. A God who's distant, what's the point? There's no point in that. But a God who is with you, Emmanuel, this Christmas thing, you know, how does that matter? Well, this matters desperately for how we talk about creation, revelation, our lives, evil, miracles, our place, our purpose, and our destiny. It really does. And, you know, maybe this morning it's just, um, you know, theoretical for you, but if somebody you love dies this week, or if you get hit by a bus, or, you know, pick something, uh, this will be real quick enough, okay? So um, this matters for how we talk about God's presence and God's action. It matters about how you talk about your prayers. It actually matters in how you celebrate Christmas. Like, what does Christmas mean? It doesn't mean you're a pantheist. It doesn't mean that you're a deist. It means that God is entering the universe. But I'm so curious, see, because we often think, I think we often think, that miracles, for example, are answered prayers. It's as if God, you know, finally stopped watching the, you know, um, um, Wheel of Fortune and looked down and gave you what, he, what you know, in between spins for a free vowel, right? You know, you, he suddenly looked down and like, okay, um, you know, you're okay. And then he goes back to what he's doing, right? Yeah, see, that's not how it is. If you actually think that your life intersects with God's life, your person, that God is next to you like, you know, your, your best friend except the way that your best friend lets you down and Jesus doesn't do that. Right? And that Jesus has capacity actually to change the course of your life and even the course of history, but does that in a way that pulls everything toward its advent consummation, everything toward its end of church year eschatological finish, right? Everything toward the last day when he comes again in glory, you're going to think about your world in a different way. Your prayers are going to be different. Your, your outlook about life is going to be different. Um, you'll be filled with hope 
even in the times when there's misery. And this is the distinction between happiness and um, uh, being and blessedness, right? Blessed is the man, Psalm 1. To be blessed is to know that you walk in the way of Jesus even when it's painful. Touch holy things, don't touch evil things. This all fits together, okay? This is doubly so if we talk about what we're always meant for, which is love. Okay, flip your page. Hey, I'd, I'd like to say, you're kind of proud of me about the way I'm going right through the outline today. You people who send me cards and letters and think I don't pay any attention to the outline, look at this. Let's start like this. Number seven, here we go, at 1032. There's all kinds of hopefulness to get through this and even to get to the end of the outline. God is not an object within our world. We're not even an idea within our intellectual world. So those are the two sides, pantheism and Gnosticism or deism. But if God isn't up in the sky, where is he? And I think we often have this notion, even when we kneel down to pray, we have this notion that God is out there somewhere instead of right here next to you, right? God is in heaven, Ecclesiastes 5.2. Granted, the word heaven, for you have a Hebrew reading exam and need extra credit this week, you want to jot this down. Uh, Granted, the word heaven in Hebrew and Greek can mean effectively the sky. So it can mean that. But the biblical writers had more, I'm sorry, but the biblical writers move more effortlessly than most modern readers between that meaning, a location within the world of space, time, and matter, and the regular meaning of God's dwelling place. And that's what you want to hold on to, right? So where's heaven? It's where God is. So now you should, of course, be thinking in the Mass, where's heaven? Where's God on the altar? And so probably, you know, we should probably kiss the altar good morning when we get there. The way you kiss your grandma. Good morning. I love you, right? This is why pastors kiss the altar when they move up. Someday, maybe. Right about the time I'm negotiating my retirement and wouldn't have to go to a voters meeting to answer for it. I might just kiss Jesus on the cheek as I meet him. That is a different sort of location altogether. Heaven in this latter, very common biblical sense, is God's space as opposed to our space. So start to think about that. You say, where is God? Well, he's in his space. And where are you? Well, you're in your space. Which doesn't mean, see, immediately we think that it's distant, right? You know, you shoot a rocket into the sky. Well, I didn't see him. He's not there. It doesn't mean that he's distant. It just means he has his own space. It's like, you know, when your little brother got his own room and you didn't have to share it anymore and he didn't steal your allowance and didn't mess up and leave his socks and get you grounded for watching cartoons. Am I telling you too much about my childhood? <laughs> Never mind, okay. I did miss a lot of cartoons on Saturday mornings, though. Okay, the question is not, the question is then whether God's space and our space, and here it is, intersect, right? Or if you want to say it this way, the question is whether your life and God's life intersect. When you come and say, I'm dark, or you say God is distant, or I can't find him, or I don't feel him, all of that, what you're saying is, is you're saying, I can't see the intersection right now. Right? And what your friend or your pastor should say to you is they say, well, you know, they're there. Um, just because you can't see things doesn't mean they're not happening. Right? If so, how, when, and where? In the Bible, our world is called Earth. Just as heaven can refer to the sky, but very commonly refers to God's dimension of reality as opposed to ours. So there's another way. God's location or God's reality. This is great. 
So the word earth can refer to the actual soil beneath our feet, but also regularly refers, as in the quotation earlier from Ecclesiastes, to our space, our reality, as opposed to God. So just kind of not go with that. So God has a reality, and we have a reality. This is easy for you. This is translated to you as God is perfect and we're sinful. You know, God is, God is other and we're common. God is mysterious, and anybody can explain us like that. Right? So God has reality, we have a reality. God has a space, we have a space. The question, of course, is, if you were really made from love, what's your relationship with God like? What's the relationship between God's reality and your reality? What's the relationship between God's space and your space? If you understand this, then all the questions about where was God on 9-11 and can miracles still happen and why does, um, you know, um, what goes on in a baptism, those all get answered if you can understand this simple thing about make, all pulled out of maker of heaven and earth. <laughs> Number eight, how do we describe this? Heaven and earth, here you go, overlap and interlock in a number of different ways. So they're not the same. They're not disconnected. The same as pantheism. Disconnected is deism. The same as panentheism. Disconnected is Gnosticism. They're not the same. God has a reality. You have a reality. God has a space. You have a space. Here's the good news. This is the gospel. God enters your life. God overlaps with your reality. God is interconnected, like those blocks that you put in with your driveway last, you thought they really looked good in September, and not today you have to shovel them. Guess what? You can't put a snow shovel over those interlocking blocks. A few chuckles and also people looking for a refund. I get it, right? <laughs> so it's this interlocking reality. Buy a brush. That's your solution. Um, hey, church is helpful in so many ways. This can seem confusing initially. After the clean, I'm sorry, after the clean either or of pantheism or deism. Now, here's the thing for you. It's the kind of confusion we should welcome. Because you know what? You're a human being. You don't understand anything. You're a flashlight, and God is the sun, right? So doing this doesn't really help or explain too much. It embraces the complexity which we ought to expect if human life is, in fact, as intricate and many-sided as we have seen. Your life is complicated, right? Your relationships are complicated. Love is complicated. If you're in love, if you choose to be in love, if you don't set yourself up anti-everybody else, your life is complicated. I mean, to be loved, to love, is to, it's a wonderful thing. It's also to hurt desperately. It is easier to think, sorry, it's easy to think you've mastered Shakespeare's plays if all you have on the shelf is the comedies. Life is good, Right? If you just have the comedies, if life is good all the time, you think life is easy. People have easy lives, haven't had tragedy in their lives, haven't had kids, um, you know, haven't lost a job. Hey, life's good, I only have the comedies. When someone brings you all the other plays as well, the tragedies, evil, right, terrorism, 9-11, shooting in the street. When somebody brings you the tragedies and history plays out, right, how does this all fit together? Plus a volume or two of the great man's poetry for good measure. Poetry, there must be something more. You will complain that things are now getting confused and highly complex, but you're actually closer to understanding Shakespeare, not further away. Okay? The belief in heaven and earth as quasi-independent but mysteriously overlapping spheres 
goes a long way toward explaining several otherwise puzzling things in ancient Israelite and early Christian life and thought. Take creation itself, coupled with the notion of God's action in the world. So this is where the rubber hits the road. Where did you come from? Remember we started, La Sagrada Familia, the the great um, cathedral. Where did you come from? Why am I here? Where are you going? Right? We talked about this, the great cathedral in Spain. Right? Where are you? Where did you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? Okay, here's the answer. For the pantheists, God and the world are basically the same thing. The world is, if you like, God's self-expression. For the deists, the world may indeed have been made by God or the gods, but there's now no contact between divine and human. But for you, for the ancient Israelite and early Christians... The creation of the world was, here it is, a free outpouring of God's powerful love. Why are you here? Because God loves you. He thought it would be great for you to be loved. The one true God made a world that was other than himself because that is what love delights to do. Love likes to love. That's what love does. Right? And love is always more. Faith, hope, and love, these abide. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith goes away someday in eternity. Hope goes away because it's fulfilled. But love is the one thing that lasts forever. Right? This is the character of God. God is love. God expresses his character in creation. God expresses his character in relationship. And God never ends, so love never ends, so you never end, right? You have a beginning, your mommy and your daddy, but you never have an end. It's remarkable stuff. And having made such a world, he has remained, here you go, close, dynamic, and intimate relationship with it, without in any way being contained within it, right? So just because he loves doesn't mean like you, you got him in a box without being contained within it or having contained or having it contained within himself. To speak of God's action in the world, so that would be the answer to your prayers, the intervention when a you know, plane full of soccer players runs out of gas and crashes into the side of the mountain, right? Or whatever's happening in, 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 in Aleppo this morning. To speak of God's action in the world, of heaven's action, if you like, on earth. And Christians speak of this every time they say the Lord's Prayer. When you say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're begging for God to intervene in your world. Thy kingdom come, the kingdom of God is holiness, expressed to you as the forgiveness of sins. Thy will, justification, Thy, thy will be done, touch holy things, Live in good works, sanctification. So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make earth like heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Nourish us both with food and with the Holy Eucharist. And don't lead us um, down uh, a a path that would kill us and don't let us touch evil. you're, You're begging for God's intervention in the world. That's what the Lord's Prayer does. Is to speak of an awkward metaphysical blunder. I'm sorry, is to speak not of an awkward metaphysical blunder, nor a miracle in the sense of a random invasion of earth by an alien. Now see, this is why, you have to, yeah, this is why it's fine to pray for miracles. 
This is why it's fine to pray for healing. This is why it's fine to pray for your kids. This is why it's fine to pray for the presidential election. This is why it's fine to pray for everything. Because it's not, you, if you can just ratchet up enough pressure on Jesus, you can make him do what you want, right? He'll like stop you know, doing whatever he's doing and, and make an appearance and then go back. No, he's right here. He's as close to you as the Eucharist. He's as close to you as your baptism. He's as close to you as the forgiveness of sins. And he loves everything about you. And he knows everything that you experience. And so when you say to Jesus, who is the sun, while well, you're the flashlight, and you say, more light, right? But Jesus calculates in whether or not he, say, for example, does a miracle, or whether he lets you die, which, as you know, is its own kind of miracle. When Jesus does the calculation, what you can be sure of is he does it for your good, because he's here as your friend, as your brother, as your savior, right? As your confessor, as the one who forgives you who only does good to you, who loves you and does not hate you, who is pleased with you and is not angry with you. Put all that together into your prayers when you pray and say to God, you know, please, right? It's not like he has to come down from somewhere and maybe pay attention. Jesus is close, he's as close to you, he's as, close to you as, as he could possibly be, right? His world overlaps and intersects with your world. He is not distant. He's very interested in you. But that doesn't mean he's going to give you, for example, in your prayers, exactly what you ask for. He's sort of working all things together for the good of those who love God, which means might be a push for you and a pull for somebody else. But the big thing goes toward the last day. Okay? Close, dynamic, intimate without in any way being contained within it or having it or, or having contained within himself. To speak of God's action in the world, of heaven's action, if you like, on earth, and Christians speak of this every time they say the Lord's Prayer, is to speak not of an awkward metaphysical blunder, nor a miracle in the sense of a random invasion of earth by an alien. That's how people mostly think about miracles. Stop the plane before it hits the mountain. But to speak of the loving creator acting within his creation, which has never lacked signs of his presence. In particular, this God appears to take very seriously the fact that his beloved creation has become corrupt, has rebelled, and is suffering the consequences. And of course, part of freedom, part of being a human being is to have freedom, and part of freedom is to touch evil things. And when you touch evil things, you are corrupted, and your world goes straight to hell. John the Baptist this morning in the Gospel, right? All right, I gotta, I promise, I just wanna, hmm, ha, he. The story goes like this The Tower of Babel is the account of a world given to injustice, spurious types of spirituality. Tell me if we're not the Tower of Babel, right? Failed relationships and the creation of buildings whose urban ugliness speaks of human pride rather than nurturing beauty. It sounds worryingly familiar. In Genesis 12, we find the great turning point. God calls Abram and makes spectacular promises to him. I will make you of a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth through you shall be blessed. The last line is the vital one. The families of the earth have become divided and confused. Right? Just watch the news today. The families of the earth have been, become divided and confused and are ruining their own lives and that of the world at large. Just take five minutes and go on Reddit today. You'll see what it is. 
Abraham and his descendants are somehow to be the means of God putting things to rights, the spearhead of God's rescue operation. Now you can do this. What I was going to challenge you to do here, but you can go home and do it, is think of all the biblical stories. Look, I listed them here for you. Abraham, Jacob. Abraham, you know, meets God. Jacob sees a ladder between heaven and earth. Moses discovers he's on holy ground. God goes before the Israelites with fire and a cloud. Do you see? Do you see these aren't like, you know, God suddenly wakes up and he decides to like throw you a bone so your life will work out. God is always right here with you. Like, the latter is the connection. You know, the presence, the fire, the cloud. He's here at the temple, Mount Sinai, the words, the tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, right? All of this, Zion, the temple. God is present with you always. That's the point. He's not the same as you. He's other. But he made you and he loves you desperately. And nothing happens outside of his hand. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Passover, Israelite, Saul, David, Babylon, Daniel. This is how God's ancient promises are to be fulfilled. There's a new king, an anointed one, on whom God's own spirit falls, Messiah, Christ. And he will, here you go, put the world back in proper order. Right? That's the whole point. I'll leave this under 11 for you to read, but I mean, this is glorious stuff. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the water, see who has no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Just turn to 12 then and we'll just finish this. Emmanuel, it turns out, is the punchline of creation. Christmas is the punchline, right? Of how God's world intersects with your world, how God's space intersects with your space how God's reality is interlocked with your reality. But the new creation will come about only through one final and shocking exile and restoration. The themes of king and temple, of Torah and new creation, of justice, spirituality, relationship, and beauty come rushing together in the dark theme which lies at the heart of the same book of Isaiah. The king turns into a servant. That's the ultimate interlocking of our destinies. Yahweh's servant. And the servant must act out the fate of Israel, must be Israel on behalf of Israel that can no longer be obedient to its vocation. The lifeboat goes out to rescue and the captain drowns in the process. When people say, you know, they just can't understand the cross, we see the cross every day. Fireman into a building, captain in a lifeboat and drowns. Somebody jumps in a river to save somebody, that somebody lives, the other person dies. Police who, you know, go into places, they run toward danger when you would run away from it. That's all The same story. Israel, gazing at the servant, will say in all its wonderment, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole. By his bruises, we are healed. It's a wonderful dream, rich, multi-layered, full of pathos and power. Why should anyone suppose it or anything else might be built upon it and that it's other than a dream? Why should we imagine it's true? The whole New Testament is written to answer that question. And all the answers, of course, focus on Jesus of Nazareth whom, as you know, John says, and without him was nothing made that was made, right? All right, got to go. Love you. See you next week. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Thank you. See you.